to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. There's an irony about today's episode. We, like just about everyone else, are talking about ChatGPT and other so-called large language models. The irony about this is that of all the topics we've discussed here on Tech Refactored, large language models are the only one that could literally discuss themselves. These large language models are language generation systems that use generative artificial intelligence in order to produce human-like text, along with other media such as music or images. Today's episode has been jointly produced with a group of student fellows at the Governance and Technology Center, Lauren Bruning, Diego Villopando, Baba Youssef, and joining me today is co-host Nilafar Mansur. My name is Nilafar Mansur. Nilafar is currently a postdoctoral fellow here at the University of Nebraska, where she has been working with the Governance and Technology Center. My work has been on the human aspects of software engineering, which is very different from machine learning and AI and all of that. One of my main areas of research and my interest is how to help developers produce better code and how to actually help them be more productive developers and software engineers. And this is one of the areas that ChatGPT is actually helping a lot of developers because it is helping explaining a lot of code and it is helping them write a lot of code. We are joined for a discussion by Marinal Raoul. Marinal is a computer scientist also here at the University of Nebraska, and she's going to help us to understand what large language models are, how they work, and what they are or are not capable of. My areas of interest are natural language processing. I'm more focused on its application in the clinical domain, medical domain. We have a lot of data and there are a lot of problems to solve in terms of finding cure for diseases, diagnosing problems correctly, and there's always a shortage of experts. So hoping that natural language processing will somehow help ease that gap in demand and supply. About six or seven months ago, I started seeing on Twitter this abbreviation LLM. And I'll just say that was really confusing for me as a law professor because Mm -hmm. an LLM is a law degree that you can get after your JD. (laughs) I was very confused by that. But uh, I pretty quickly figured out this was uh, referring to this new technology. ChatGPT was uh, just being announced. But we've already used a different term, NLP, natural language processing. And that's been a, a term that's been used for 20 30 years Mm -hmm. or or longer that deals with using computers, computer science algorithms to process natural language as language that you and I use, humans use. Um, Where does this new LLM approach fit into this bigger category of natural language processing? The confusion that you mentioned before, we've had the same confusion with the term neural networks, which is thrown around a lot. Because when you hear neural, you you feel it's something like a brain, you know, there are neurons. And what do the neurons look like? You know, how, how similar they are to the brain. And that confuses a lot of people, especially medical practitioners, <laughs> when they hear the term neural network. But then coming back to the question... Large language models or language models, they study the language mathematically and statistically to identify patterns. So natural language processing in general aims to identify patterns, but then it could be used for 
different objectives it could be used for let's say finding out how to generate a sentence or it could be used for finding out how to summarize a given text so there are different aspects to it uh, but not the large language models or language models generally are aimed at generating text mm-hmm. or generating sentences from a given prompt so they're kind of inverses of each other uh, natural language processing i guess you're using to process language and llms are doing something with that in order to generate new text uh i wouldn't say inverse i would say it is a subset it is one part of it it combines generative ai with applied to languages but natural language processing it's it's an umbrella term mm-hmm. so you can do things like if you're given two sentences and you want to find out what is the relationship between two sentences you know that's part of natural language processing it's a task called as textual entailment mm-hmm. so natural language processing is an umbrella term for any activity that deals with accepting input in natural language and then doing something out of it and then language models in particular they are more concerned with the generative aspect so it will study the language and then it will try to give you an output that sounds like maybe a human said it mm-hmm. and we don't steer away from getting pretty technical in our discussions on this podcast but if we could probably start what in the world is an llm like chatgpt doing how how does it work to give this human like language so you can think of chatgpt or any language model they're called la- large language models because to get the kind of performance you're seeing right now it involves a lot of computations so that is why it's just large language models and then you can think of it as a box that can digest a lot of training data and what happens during training phase so training is a very important phase that is when the language is given as much information as it needs to hopefully give a good performance so in, in this case that's taking lots of written text i guess it doesn't need to be written text but yeah so putting books into it uh putting the entire contents of reddit having it read twitter having it read wikipedia Correct. and ingesting all of that human generated primarily english text yeah um yeah i i don't know if chat gpt has this but i know there are models that can use different types of data as an audio images not just textual mm-hmm. but yeah for the sake of simplicity we can just stick to textual data so earlier when you did not have these language models and you did not have the hardware to process so much data we were mostly focused on humans identifying patterns and then telling the model okay these are the patterns and probably mimic something like this so that you can generate a human like sentence but now what we are doing is we are giving the model these sentences and it's designed in the form of a task so similar to how you would teach a child a language let's say the model is given a sentence and then a couple of words are masked out and the model has to predict which words might best fit mm-hmm. in those places so fill in the blanks um or <laughs> so what we're playing mad libs basically <laughs> yeah or next sentence prediction okay i'm giving you a sentence 
design a sentence that would most likely follow this particular sentence so these tasks are designed and that takes up a lot of pre-processing of the training data it's not just get a data off of the internet get a book off of internet and feed it to the model you have to design a task which the creators of these models usually do and that's how you can think of a model as a bunch of numbers you can adjust those numbers in such a way that you get a human-like output. It somehow figures out how to find out, okay, I have this dictionary of words with me, which is the best word to pick from this dictionary at, at a particular time. So that is kind of how the language model works. So can you say a little more about that perhaps? I think that's one of the things folks both uh, have a lot of questions and concerns about and Mm -hmm. also don't really understand as well. So we've seen, for instance, examples of models being released that are meant to be more conservative or liberal or neutral in uh, how they respond to or generate text. We've seen lots of questions and different types of how creative is this text going to be? How factual is this text going to be? And if you dial the creativity dial too far, it no longer sounds like a human. It sounds like a poet who's probably coming back from a a night out on the town (laughs) and uh, is like Shakespeare squared, no longer sounds like a human. Um, And if you have too little creativity, it sounds very dry. And that that doesn't sound like a human either. Mm -hmm. Every word that's the next words. It's too on point. It sounds Mm -hmm. artificial. So what are these variables, these levers that you can pull? Okay, so uh, with respect to the amount of creativity, I know ChatGPT has a setting. It's called temperature. And I think the values are between zero and one. So zero is maximum creativity and one is the least amount of creativity. And I think it just depends on the use case as to what creativity you want it to be set to. Maybe if you want more, if it's like a creative writing assignment, or if you want to just dabble and see, okay, what, how much can I stretch this particular idea? Probably you can use it as a a lesser temperature that makes it more creative. But then what was your first question about? There are other levers or dials. We've seen some folks develop uh, models that are designed to be more conservative politically oh, okay. versus liberal politically. And and I, I, I'm sure there are other sorts of instrumentations or, or mm-hmm, levers mm-hmm. that uh, developers can put into the. I'm, I'm less concerned about the political valence, but how do these levers work? How are they designed? Yeah, so the key is all in the training data. Basically... The model knows what it has seen so far. Mm-hmm. You can see that the model grounds in itself on those things. So even if you ask some questions to ChatGPT whose answers are not really clear or there might be different versions, if you really press on it, it'll give you an answer. And if you say, okay, I don't like this answer because I think there are different answers, you'll see it cornering and saying, yeah, I know there are different answers, but based on my training data, this is what I've been told. And if you feel there are any biases, please let us know, give us feedback. So the key lies in training data. So if you see a model spitting out a particular pattern of output, 
it is safe to say that it has seen a lot of text mirroring that particular train of thought so when you say model understands now this might be a little controversial but there's there's a difference between human understand and model understands mm-hmm. because of the way we perceive reality versus if you can say that how models perceive the surroundings you know so we have a kind of grounding and i think at least till this stage we are providing that basic assumption to the model so whatever basic assumption i'm not saying the creators intend to provide that a lot of these things right now it's just okay let's see how far we can stretch this you know mm-hmm. how good it can be and of course they realize that there's a chance of bias creeping in so they would want to curate a uh, training data set that according to best of their knowledge is not biased mm-hmm. but they're still humans right <laughs> yep. they and that's one of the reasons why they've asked why they've provided chat gpt for general users because they want to get feedback about how users interact with the model or what kind of questions are asked are people happy with the answers are the answers relevant and things like that but yeah if the main bottom line of this answer is that if you see a particular pattern emerging from the responses it's safe to say that it's coming from the training data so you've hit on something there that we'll come back to in a, a moment why these services are free and how they're being used uh, right now which is a, a a fascinating discussion that we'll come back to. Would like to let uh, Nilafar jump in for a moment. Yeah, speaking of biases in machine learning in general and in natural language processing algorithms. So I was wondering, uh, so I know this is a very open-ended question. There's a lot of research on it, but what is the end goal to address all of these bias issues? So are we expecting these algorithms, for example, to actually understand their own biases, or is it on humans to actually provide them with non-biased data? Because as you mentioned, humans are biased in nature. So do you think there is it too idealistic to say that there will be models that will not be biased or is it just something that we always have to work on is it possible for them for these models to actually understand that they are biased i think the short answer would be it's not the destination but a journey so mm-hmm. it's it's the same if you want to be an unbiased person even despite of that intent that i want to be unbiased unless and until i'm subject to different point of views mm-hmm. and i analyze things myself i cannot make myself more unbiased in the same way the model will rely on feedback and when i say the model it's the creators of the model because the it model can't feed itself data i mean there are ways of channeling feedback directly into the model but essentially someone is programming that so let's just say yeah continuous feedback is the only key because even amongst humans it's difficult to sometimes reach a point of consensus you know sometimes you have to agree to disagree or sometimes there are multiple realities or depending on your perspective and point of view with sciences or some branch of sciences you know the sun rises in the east things are simple but that's it's not that simple with a lot of things So yeah I would say it's a destination but we are going to constantly be in this journey of getting to the ideal unbiased model 
there will be something or the other sometimes it will move more towards one point of view sometimes to the other point of view depending on the feedback that mm-hmm. you're getting i i'd like to uh, spend just a moment asking the really hard question to explain and perhaps uh, there is no easy explanation to this but uh, you you had ter- used the term uh, earlier the black box or peering into the box and frequently when we're talking about generative ai we we talk about it as a, a black box what mathematically is going on under the hood of these systems uh, obviously we we have a whiteboard in this room and you i'm sure could fill that with all sorts of uh, uh details on there but we're we're using audio so what's the what's the 30 second explanation of mathematically what's going on with these models i think the key here is finding patterns so what is happening is the model knows a bunch of words every model has its vocabulary and then when the model sees actual text it tries to figure out how a particular word is used in different contexts so it can you can think of it as it is kind of building a mind map of these words in a vocabulary so it has this vocabulary and it's building a mind map and if you think of it as a 3d graph then it, any line joining between two words will have a certain number associated with it and that number is an indicator of the importance of one word to the other something like that mm-hmm. so all of this is happening inside the model and why we say it as black box is because i just visually represented a 3d model but when you when you look at what is exactly happening inside a model all you see is a bunch of numbers and for a human brain it is difficult to identify exactly what is happening or you provide a certain input to the model and gives you an output but if you want to know exactly why this output why not that output currently it's a little difficult to answer that question and especially people who do not belong to the cs ml ai field they find it extremely unsatisfying <laughs> with the answers that we provide because in the end you you want it to relate to the domain the model is being used in so medicine or even legal for example but it's very difficult to answer with certainty that this is the reason why the model gave this particular answer but yeah that's the reason it's called black box and that's the reason it's mysterious <laughs> yeah you know it, if you think about it this is how grammar and language works we're speaking right now we're talking in english and we understand the basic rules of mm-hmm. english it's our grammar if we're talking about conjugating a verb there are rules for how we conjugate verbs mm-hmm. but there's no mathematical natural law reason that our grammar has to work this way in fact there are other languages yeah. with different conjugations so it turns out the only reason that we're able to use this grammar and that we like to use this grammar is because we understand the mathematical relationships between if you use i am the noun and you know that this sort of verb comes after the word i there there's no grand theory there's no reason that this is true yeah so that's where creativity comes in right and that's where language is not a static thing 
mm-hmm. it changes it changes based on the other influences on a language there are certain words that the way that we are using it in the present times they weren't used the same way in the past times you know so i feel earlier uh, in the earlier stages of natural language processing people really tried okay let's feed these grammar rules into this machine and it should be able to figure out the rest of the stuff it should be able to understand what is told it should be able to spit out a response that makes sense but the thing is language is not just grammar it's you've been given this set of rules but then use your creativity and it's the way we use it is to communicate our thoughts to the world mm-hmm. right so um yeah that is the reason the shift happened from let's not give it just grammar let's just say okay this is kind of what you have to do but then throw in a bunch of data and let it learn from <laughs> that data yeah i it, it never dawned on me that that this question of what what is a black box what what are these numbers what do they mean well explain to me why this conjugation in english has to be this way there is no reason it has to be that way it's just we've settled upon that it that's a black box right there yeah and then if you think of it like if you, if you go back to okay how did we get here language is also audio symbols right mm-hmm. if something is continuous why do you add an ing no that's what we decided <laughs> <laughs> so it's that way <laughs> So yeah, the whole thing contributes into. Yeah, it's also interesting to add that computer scientists when they were coming up with programming languages, they also approached it in the same way, right? Mm-hmm. They said that okay, so these are a bunch of lexicons and these are a bunch of instructions that we call grammar. So mm-hmm. this generates like basically these are the rules to a programming language. Yeah. So this was the kind of idea back then that uh, languages are just a set of rules and then if we can come up with a programming language this way then we can teach machines how to learn languages in this yes. way as well but then they realized that and in general in ai right because there were a lot of like rule based ai yeah. back in the like 60s and 70s and then they realized no data is the way to go yeah yeah i mean it it goes back and forth sometimes it's good good to use a mix of it it just depends on the area of application but yeah now it's more data driven compared to algorithm or rule space rule based yes so we've been focusing a lot on how this technology <laughs> works and a little on what it's capable of i i think what many people are concerned about and the questions many people have are what are its limitations what are we not going to be able to do with this technology especially that we might try to do with this technology i think right now it's more about the lack of transparency i think that's a big limiting factor but if you think about tasks that involve low level of creativity or tasks that are more template based they are more likely or they are more suitable for ai tasks compared to the ones that involve a lot of original thought um or a lot of creativity but as far as the limitations goes i think because of the development in hardware or the kind of hardware that we have right now and the kind of research that is happening i think 
it's safe to say that technologically we won't have any limitations i'm not saying that any person can come and create a language model because it does require a lot of energy gpu power things like that so yeah it is resource intensive um but if someone has the resources then they will definitely be able to create a language model so i would say just finding out exactly how things work is one of the major limitations but other than that at least right now i don't i don't want to put across something as limitations because tomorrow there might be a, <laughs> might be something <laughs> that that makes my statement false that so. that's a uh, very very fair point and we we've seen that just over the last 6 months mm-hmm. with uh, chatgpt going from version 3.5 which was amazing but had some clear issues mm-hmm. and people are saying oh these are limitations well it's going to be another decade before we overcome these limitations and then literally Three months later, ChatGPT four was released and it addressed some of those limitations. It, it yeah. was amazing. Yeah, and the reason why I say lack of understanding of its working is a big limitation because it creeps into how much you can use it or where you can use it. Uh, I mean, if you want a language model to just because it can talk to you like you would talk to a human, you wouldn't want to ask it questions that you would normally would. ask to your doctor right because you can't be sure the language model itself tells you i am a model <laughs> please verify please do your homework before you use this for something else mm-hmm. so yeah i think that's that's a severe limitation um that's the reason people are skeptical people might find it dangerous because there's no saying why it did something that it did what about safety concerns and uh, i'm thinking for instance we've seen reports that chatgpt and you'll have mentioned using it for generating code and mm-hmm. as a, a co-developer almost there have been reports that the code that chatgpt produces and we we shouldn't just say chatgpt this is i expect true of all of the uh, current models very frequently has substantial security flaws in it it is not well written code from a security perspective it's functional it does what you ask it to do but there you need to work with it much more to make it secure or we've seen companies mm-hmm. i think samsung was the company that had this uh, issue come up internal developers using chatgpt releasing corporate secrets trade secrets the code that they're using and i'm i'm a lawyer law firms this is a huge concern oh yeah don't use chatgpt to help write this client letter that has confidential information in it because you've just shared that information with the model what what about these sort of concerns yeah i would i would highly encourage anyone who wants to use language models to look at the terms of usage privacy policies because all of these even i think voice assistants like alexa siri they tell you not to provide or mention any personal identifiers personal information just so that i mean i think whatever software is processing your request it does have capabilities of blocking personal identifiers like names this that because they do use your samples for generating usage metrics and things like that and that's how they improve the software but they they really don't want because they don't want lawsuits so they don't want your private information to be a part of that data but then you know it's not a 100% perfect thing 
so something might slip because there has been a mistake so the software did not identify this particular thing as an ssn you know there was an alphabet in between so it did not identify it as an ssn things like that mm-hmm. so that's one thing and the other thing about chat gpt generating code so chat gpt is a generic model it's not a model that is created with an intention to help people learn code or develop a an intermediate level code you know if someone wants to learn how to code it's a good resource but in the end you have to understand the code that it's spitting out and you have to the onus is on the individual using it to identify how good or bad it is how much it fits the use case so i was looking at a youtube video where that person was creating a, a website a static website using html and css and even that person mentioned that yeah it's giving you it's it's a good starter code you know otherwise you would have to go to google go to some tutorials follow some tutorials and then fit it according to your requirements here you can just first of all you have to learn how to give good prompts to the gpt mm-hmm. in order to for it to be able to give you something that's reasonable and secondly the code that it gives if you copy and paste it it may or may not work so you need to figure out there might be a one or two changes like a file name change you know gpt decides oh this is the default file name that i'm going to use but your file name is something different mm-hmm. so you need to understand in the end you can't just mindlessly copy paste stuff you need to understand what is being done and you need to constantly evaluate if that is your end goal that is what you want to achieve so you can't just say okay chat gpt give me a secure code because that the model is doing uh, performing to the best of its abilities but it might not be the best mm-hmm. right it is not going to be able to replicate something that a person who has spent 10 years writing safe secure code might be able to do yeah and of course we should perhaps say yet I think yeah. again it's the a person that has spent 10 years learning has spent 10 years <laughs> ChatGPT has not yet done that. Yeah, I think that's that's a general asterisk conditions applied. All of these things are true at the moment. They might not be true 10 days later. Yeah, so as a follow-up question to that answer, uh, a lot of people are very worried about losing their jobs mm-hmm. because of technologies like like ChatGPT. Even a lot of developers I'm seeing in uh different places that they're saying that oh we are only supposed to learn prompt engineering now instead of actually learning even though like as you mentioned people need to know some programming to be able to actually work with those outputs that chatgpt mm-hmm. gives them so what do you think about all these worries that people have about losing their jobs because of ai so i take all of that feedback as people gearing up for the new reality i mean i feel a lot of people know it's that's not exactly the case it's not like suddenly a lot of people are going to be unemployed but it is definitely going to change the nature of your jobs uh, like i said it is ai or machine learning in general is optimized for tasks that have templates or rules or less amount of creativity so probably what will happen is the way i see it 
is if you're working in the company's core competency in any industry you're fine your job i'm not saying it your job the nature of your job won't change but you will still be required because you have domain expertise and there is a certain element that a human brings to the table that cannot be replicated in a laptop right but i feel what this is going to do is everyone or most of the people would have to look and find out what is that creative aspect or what what do they what different stuff do they bring to the table you mentioned jobs about programming yeah you can be a better prompt designer and find better prompts to write a code and all of that it's fine when i think about a software or working software there's a lot of design aspect to it right so no two laptops or os operating systems are the same because the design of the operating system is different so i feel that way even though there are things that chat gpt does there's still an element of how are you going to use how are you going to use this code snippet how are you going to use this information so there's a little bit of randomness there you insert a human two humans may not use it in the same way mm-hmm. right so that's how things can still be different so i feel yes it would be naive to say nothing is going to change but at the same time i feel it's going to change the way you do certain things the same way as you know you have alexa and siri but you still do certain things the way you you want them to do or maybe if you want to search something earlier you had to open your laptop and type in your search words now you just ask siri so it's more about comfort or convenience uh, that's the element it is bringing but other than that i feel there is some fear mongering but i feel it's good because it helps you build better systems <laughs> right mm-hmm. and what one of the things um that i think i'm i'm hearing you uh, say at least implicitly is this is a using these systems is an essential skill for future employees and employers to understand um you you spoke earlier about how some amount skill is required in order to develop prompts to give these systems in order to get usable output and you need to work with them they're going to be mm-hmm. a tool no matter what field you're in mm-hmm. um and that's not something that you naturally know how to do so if i don't care what field you're in i'm i'm a professor i'm an educator boy oh boy we'd better be teaching lawyers how to use these technologies and come up with useful prompts in order to get useful draft contracts or draft wills that they can then go and look at and make sure they're good if you're a software engineer you can use these systems to get really great first drafts of code mm-hmm. that may or may not run and then you debug it you you're going to be integrating it into your own project into your own code and you're going to be responsible for making sure that it's secure and it uh, runs well mm-hmm. um but it's going to be a dramatic performance optimizer uh in your coding process and, and something interesting that you touched on is the importance of design in the software engineering cycle that is something that a lot of junior developers or people who are new to software engineering and coding don't see the importance of uh, because they think that 
everything about software engineering is coding. But yeah. uh, I think that, uh, like you correctly mentioned, technologies such as ChatGPT basically teach you that it is much more important to think about how you're designing software and then you are asking it to actually code that for you. Yeah, so. yeah. It's just that offloading, the same way industries want to offload something that's not their core competency. You mm-hmm. know, that's why they hire consultants. Because I, I don't know, I have to do this, but... I don't want to spend my time doing this. So I'll give you everything and you do it for me. So that's how ecosystems are developed. So I feel now you have Grammarly, right? So Grammarly says, okay, just start writing. Once it gets what what kind of email you want, want to write, it will suggest you better words. It will suggest you better phrasing, things like that. So... It's just offloading things that are not your core competencies. Mm -hmm. But what is important to understand here, you'll feel, oh, then, you know, what's my use? Why do we have novelists? We can just ask AI to write a novel. But the thing is, whatever it is that you can use, hundreds of other people have have access to the same technology. So where's the differentiating factor? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, you know how you want machine-made goods, but then sometimes it's just nice to have a unique handcrafted item. So, it's the same way. Maybe to get a starter template, you would want to go to ChatGPT and just say, okay, show me how like a decent template fulfilling XYZ requirements look like. So, instead of you having to work for a day or two just to get the initial template, You might start off with something, but then it just means that you have to work harder to make it creative or Mm -hmm. unique. So Mm -hmm. that's the way it's going to change the nature of work. And those who understand how the technologies work and have more experience with working with them, they're going to outperform other employees in the workplace, very likely. Yeah. So it, it becomes an essential skill. Yeah. I, I want to come back to one topic uh, that we had uh, mentioned earlier, which is, I, I guess I'll phrase it this way, what, what's the business model here? Why are these services free right now? They, they are not cheap. Oh, no, they are not. I know OpenAI says it's a research organization, so right now it, it doesn't want... To serve a particular type of user, it wants everyone to access the service and take advantage of it. That's the official statement. Uh, but if you ask it, is it going to be free forever? It'll say things might change, <laughs> uh, which is expected, uh, of course. But it's free mainly because one of the problems AI models have run into is it not performing that well on real data compared to the training data that has been. And uh, if you look at it technically or mathematically, there are ways to ensure that the model is not picking up patterns only from the the training data it's been provided, but kind of learning general rules about the data that it sees. But then besides the technical aspect of it, Machine learning models do run into the problem of not being able to generalize well. That's that's the term that you say. It's not generalizing, which means it's not giving you a good performance on real data. So I feel this is one way of OpenAI getting feedback from the users as to in what ways are they using. Because if you have, say, a team of 
hundred engineers who are testing the model, they can only come up with a small subset of use cases mm-hmm. for the model, regardless of how much time they spend. They cannot be a good sample for population in the world, mm-hmm. right? right? Uh, different countries or people from different countries, people using different languages as their as their native language might. use it differently so this is a good way for them to get real feedback and also to see how their model is performing in the real world so that's mm-hmm. that's how they would know how good or bad their training process was so i think one of the major things is feedback and also i feel if they keep it locked there's a higher chance of people fear mongering <laughs> you know mm-hmm. right. so just get it out in the open let people experience it so that it doesn't become like this mysterious evil robot that's going to kill all humans mm-hmm. right. you know Ho- hopefully it's, um, <laughs> yeah it's fascinating um you and we we use the term large language model and that's because it needs a large amount of language mm-hmm. so i uh, it's such a brilliant way to get real world test data and training data mm-hmm. have it interact with anyone who wants to come and uh, interact with it is there something in there that tells us about limitations on potential future use cases and what what i have in mind with that eventually these tools are going to not be run by three or four companies with really large databases large uh, language uh, uh, training data i'm thinking again going back to those examples law firms lawyers cannot share their data outside of the firm and samsung microsoft for internal programming they need to have internal training data sure. so is there some tension some necessary minimum viable largeness that these models need to have in order to be effective or in 5 years if you're running a mid-sized business might you have your own internally trained model to support your business functions to the best of my knowledge for a model that gives the performance that chatgpt is giving it needs a lot of data and uh, it needs a lot of resources mm-hmm. energy and storage and computational resources so for a mid-sized firm whose core competency is not tech it doesn't make sense for them to invest so much uh but what will happen and it's similar to how cloud services are being used right now mm-hmm. so i know that um amazon aws so they have um a way to offer their services to highly confidential like organizations dealing with highly confidential data like hospitals or legal firms and they will give you the guarantee that this data is visible mm-hmm. only to your it's not going to leave your organization or it's not going to leave this space of aws that is allocated to your organization so there's not going to be any leakage there I think something similar might happen with ChatGPT because obviously that that is the most reasonable business model they mm-hmm. can have. They'll say, "Okay, 
on a monthly basis you know they'll have their billing terms and they'll say okay you can use our resources and we have these extra filters or we call it de-identification softwares so we'll have these extra de-identification software so that whatever is in the cloud even if there is a leak or a hack people won't be able to uh, decrypt the knowledge it will be encrypted and even if they are able to somehow figure out they won't exactly know what people uh, are being talked about so yeah that is the business model that i see the the commercialization path is fascinating to think about and mm-hmm. each industry you can imagine having its own trained model um because every every industry has some of its own terminology yeah. some of its own require its its own patterns so even now if you go to the uh, open ai website i think they have a tutorial on how to f- it's called fine tuning a model mm-hmm. so basically they have a model that understands english but then you want it to speak mm-hmm. so then you can use the training set that you have maybe previous cases things like that digitized documents and then you can feed it to the model and then the model can understand oh okay this is the way or the context in which so remember uh, i'm going back to the 3d visualization of vocabulary and having a mind map of vocabulary so the the weights would be initially when the model comes to you or you get access to the model the weights would be according to the usage in general english but once you do the fine tuning the weights will be tuned according to legal speak so mm-hmm. the relation between two words might change because in your court documents these two words are used together a lot things like that it's not a new concept you can still fine tune it and most it is advised if you have a specific domain that you're working in um mm-hmm. then you're supposed to fine tune it so that it gives you more relevant responses mm-hmm. yep i know that we discussed a lot of the capabilities and limitations of the language models so i'm just going to ask this one so what do you think about how universities schools and colleges should navigate this post chat gpt oh, world yeah. uh, tell <laughs> us a little bit about how you think uh the plagiarism issues can be solved when people are using this uh, technology and as an academic how does it uh, affect writing papers or proposals or anything that is uh, usually not done by the help of ai in the academic world before chatgpt yeah that's a good question um, regarding plagiarism i remember there was a video or a reel where the prof was like turnitin has a feature where it can figure out if you've used chat gpt or not i'm not surprised it was going to happen at some point mm-hmm. in time but i feel we'll have softwares that would try to figure out if you've used chat gpt to create and develop or write an answer or not in general i think there's no point denying that people won't use chat gpt and it will affect different areas in different ways for example literature would be affected in a different way compared to computer science or mm-hmm. mathematics right so i think things will have to change and one way i see is maybe if the professor encourages there's an exercise where you write something ask chat gpt to write something and then the students themselves compare and contrast two answers you know so i would say just embrace it and then probably have people 
self declare if they have used chat gpt mm-hmm. and in what way they have used chat gpt because it is going to happen mm-hmm. yeah find the middle people, ground even, right yeah even in professional jobs people are going to use it but the main thing is the whole point behind these assignments is to have students think about something or develop skills in some way so being able to do that despite of the presence of chat gpt is going to be the key and different departments will have to figure out different ways of doing it so there's no one particular answer and also class sizes is going to be a big big factor in this whole thing if you have large class sizes then having assignments and going through all the assignments will be difficult but yeah i mean i feel that there's no point banning it or saying you can't use it people are going to use it mm-hmm. but mm. other thing they can use and i don't know if chat gpt wants to do that or language models want to do that every response has a key or an identifier so maybe you know <laughs> universities can say okay we need we need to be able to figure out if this particular answer was generated by chat gpt so just copy paste it and fine there's a way to figure out if this thing was generated by chat gpt you know and another algorithm flagging answers that were generated by chat gpt so there are technical solutions then there are non technical solutions and i think it's going right. to be a mix of it but it is going to yeah. people are going to use it yeah definitely a middle ground would be better for all of that because of course students or anyone who is using that can just change some parts of an answer and say that i got just a little bit of help and i did it mostly on my own right yeah but then you can ask questions about the answer mm-hmm. or, or the student's response if you have written it you know why you wrote something right, exactly. why you think something is this like way. what was your train of thought behind exactly, this idea exactly yeah. but then again i know class size is going to be a big exactly. matter because otherwise you just have to do a spot check you know, mm-hmm. pick 10 students randomly yeah. and mm-hmm. do it so if if the professor is lucky yeah. he would get the right 10 yeah. students in cases of for example the computer science classes it's already very difficult mm-hmm. to realize whether students uh, are sharing code with one another there are a lot of different software that helps but uh, i mean we've all been TAs we we definitely <laughs> see this happening a lot but to the trained eye you can yeah. figure out the level of the student and the kind of code it's written sometimes <laughs> it's it's easy to figure out yes. but then i i i always say that everyone is improvising right students are also getting better at getting away at these things yeah <laughs> exactly. yeah it's a continuous process yeah. actually you. one question i had was um is what kind of chatter is there about creating policies around these language models legally so to two two different questions there uh legally and then also educationally mm-hmm. um every university every department in every university is thinking about and having discussions about uh, th- this question of how to incorporate whether to limit the use of these technologies and uh, mo- most of the discussions are rather inchoate and incoherent i'll just say um, uh no but my question was more around the way chat gpt is being used and there might be some implications of if it's being fed data that's not accurate or mm-hmm. appropriate and the way people are using chat gpt if someone if someone uses it for bad purpose or something has a bad outcome mm-hmm. 
is there any talk about looking at policies that put safeguards in place you can't ban something and it's mostly guidelines based right so policies in place to kind of match up to the amount of the impact of yeah, it, such language models uh, it, it's a very active discussion um and there i'd say right now are no answers so mm-hmm. the some of this uh, sort of things that on the the legal side folks are talking about include does Section 230, which uh, uh, many people will be familiar with, it broadly immunizes platforms for content posted by users. Does that apply to large language models? Um, So if my large language model says something defamatory Mm -hmm. or you ask, what's a good recipe for making chicken piccata? And it suggests including bleach in your chicken piccata Mm -hmm. recipe and you do that and you're injured as a result. Can you sue the operator of the large language model? That sort of question is there. Lots of questions about copyright and patentability. Yeah. Um, Do these infringe on copyright? Under what circumstances might they? If one of these systems comes up with a new invention that might be patentable, well, is it patentable? If it's, can it meet the threshold requirements of originality? Mm. If a computer system just statistically came up with this new thing, um, is that novel? Is it original? If not, is it patentable? Can, Mm. if you as an engineer, as a developer, co-invent, co-create something using one of these, who owns it? Again, is it patentable? Lots of questions like that. And I, I, can confidently say we don't know the answers to any of these questions and we will not for many years. <laughs> well, uh, Neela Farmanser, thank you for joining me as co-host today and helping uh, with your team of fellows here at the Governance and Technology Center to put together this discussion. And Rinal Rahul, thank you for joining us for this discussion. Learned a whole lot and I am confident we will continue to generate lots of text about large language models moving forward. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC. NGTC.